Well, good morning. Hi, Sue. Well, thank you, Cheryl. You're very kind. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we, as we continue in 1 John. Father, thank you for this part of your word. We ask today that you would fill us with confidence, that we would leave today knowing that which John wanted us to know, which you want us to know, and that because of the certainties, you might fill us with all peace, with all joy in believing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are intolerable. You may not need me to tell you that. You may uh, automatically think of specific people and you think to yourself, yes, Christians are intolerable. I don't don't mean it in the personal, individual, relational sense, right? We can all think of people that are intolerable. I, I don't mean it in that sense. Christians are intolerable to our culture because we speak in absolutes. We speak in certainties. We speak of a truth that is outside of us. Our culture, the postmodern world that we live in, everything is subjective, everything is relative, everything is within my mind and my world and my experience. Whereas we speak not only of a truth that is external to us, but a reality that is beyond what is in our own heads, a reality, in fact, that is a very specific one. A reality that is God's truth. Not our truth, but His. A reality that God reveals to us. It's not something that we discover by our own cleverness, by our own ingenuity, by our own scientific methods. We know because God has told us. God's truth, it comes to us in a a book strangely, in a document, written down a word that we might read it and understand it and know it. A book that is not just factual. This book doesn't just contain facts about reality, but it is authoritative. This book, the Word of God, spoken and written down for us, determines the truth as we Christians believe it and live it. So we can say anything that contradicts this word is not God's truth. If you want me to put it bluntly, anything that contradicts this book is wrong. And so Christians are intolerable to our society. The one thing you are not allowed to do is to say that someone else is wrong. We live in the realm of absolutes and certainties because it comes from God. Because it's not dependent upon me and my whims and how I wake up today or how tomorrow treats me. Because it is God's holy word that tells us the truth. You could say that anything outside of God's truth, well, you can't be sure of that. But if we have it here, we can be. God's word gives us certainty. And John had that in mind as he wrote this. I mean, you'll find it helpful to have 1 John still open, by the way, in case you closed your Bibles. Right, just note the very first verse, verse 13 of what we're reading today. I write these things to you, right? I've written down, you have this document so that you may know. The certainty comes because of what has been written. Now, what are these things? I write these things. Well, really, it's the whole rest of the book that John is now summarising, concluding and bringing to an end. So uh, in one sense, I could just preach the last 10 sermons to you in a row by way of recap. Uh, I won't. Uh, you can go and find them online if, if you've missed them. If you want to go and find them out uh, on our website, you can find links to them. 
But today I do want to point out five certainties. Five things that John wants us to know. Five things that John wants us to have confidence about. You can know this. You can know it for sure. And if you're a Christian, I want you to leave today with confidence. That's my aim. That's my purpose. I want you to walk out of here feeling kind of strengthened and your backbone kind of just brought up a bit and, and with certainty of who God is and who you are in God's world. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to see how good the Christian life is. The sorts of things that we have because we listen to God. Five certainties. Now, I hope you've got an outline, a little handout on your way in. Uh, at, at one point, you are going to need something, you're going to need to write something down. Now, whether you're a note taker or not, at some point, you are going to need to write something down. And we have got a pack of pencils up the back. So I wonder, Andrew, if you might not run around now and hand them out. I think, Raf, if you look on your right, just above the amplifier, you might find a box there. Or maybe I'm making it up. Oh, here they are. Hey, leftover from eight o'clock. I'm sorry. Anyone need a pencil? You're going to need to write something down at some point, so you might as well put your hand up and grab one now. If you don't have an outline as well, we can get you one of those, by the way. No mystery, right? Five certainties, and I've listed them for you in your outline, so you, you know where we're going. Really, this is just my excuse to get you to take more notes. That's all it is. But anyway. All right, I'll start talking. Andrew can keep going. Keep your hand up if you need one. Five certainties. The first one is this. The first one is that Christians know that we have eternal life. Right? Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Just notice the difference here. There's a difference between have eternal life and know that you have eternal life. We have it in Jesus, but we can also have confidence. We can have certainty that we have eternal life. We can know that we have it. It's one of my favorite parts of Christianity Explored. We just finished on Wednesday the, the short version of the course that we did at the end of term. And uh, the first week, we get everybody to, to write down a, a number, basically. I, I gave them a, a line these, at the start of this particular one, and they had to kind of choose somewhere along the line where they stood. The question is very simple. How confident are you that you will go to heaven? Right? They had to rank it, with, with one being, uh, I'm confident that I'm not going to heaven, and then ten being, right, I'm completely confident. I don't know why I didn't do it zero to a hundred and just write a percentage. Right? That would have made much more sense. But anyway, right, and so they, they have to mark it. How confident are you? And usually at the start of the course, most people kind of go for a five, a six, you know, oh, maybe I'd like to think that perhaps I will, but I'm, I'm not really sure kind of thing. And then as we work through it, as they realize that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have salvation that is not dependent upon you, but upon him, you can have confidence. No. And how is it that you can know? Well, it is for those who believe in the name of the Son of God. I want you to do something for me. I want you on your outline to write down a number. Between zero and a hundred. A number that represents how confident you are that you will go to heaven. Zero, you are confident that you will not go to heaven. 
A hundred. Yes, you will be there. Go on. Right, that's why you got your pencil, to write that number. It's okay. Right? I'm not going to collect papers afterwards. This isn't an exam. I'm not going to mark them in staff meeting tomorrow or something. Right? Oh, look what they wrote. I'm going to come back to that number in a moment. You can know that you have eternal life. And how? By believing in the name of the Son of God. Now, this isn't a superstitious thing, right? As long as you, you, you say the name enough, right? As long as you're Jesus, Jesus, right? As the Son of God. As long as you kind of hold on to this name in some sort of superstitious, religious, ritualistic way, you're going to find salvation. It's not the name per se. It's not a magical word. Right? If you name your child Jesus, they're guaranteed to, right? No, it's the name encapsulates the person. And believing isn't just assenting to the fact. It's not just, oh yes, yes, I, I believe Jesus was real. Oh yes, even the demons believe in God and shudder, we're told. It's not just belief, it's trust. It's accepting what Jesus says about himself. Trusting and depending upon Jesus. In fact, if you remember last week, right, just look back at verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony. This is what God has spoken God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You can know with certainty that you will go to heaven. Repent and believe in Jesus. Really, this is the heart of the matter. The other four certainties are cool, right? They're exciting. We're going to come to them in a moment. But this one is at the very heart of it. I got you to write that number down because it's a great little diagnostic. If you wrote anything other than a hundred, you need to come and do Christianity Explored. <laughs> We're starting it again, week one next term. We're going to do the eight-week version, right? We're going to put the, the big boy pants on and go for the real, right, the, the big one. Spend eight weeks working it out because you can know, you can have certainty. And if you don't have it, then you need to come and work out why. If you are unsure, this point is the one that I need to hammer home above all others. Your salvation may well depend on it. Five certainties. The first one is this. We can know that we have eternal life in the Son. The second one is that God answers prayer. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It's a phenomenal promise. I mean, it truly is one of those promises that you go, really? I can ask anything of God and he will hear me and he will answer that prayer I mean look we, we already have eternal life okay? we already have relationship with God through Jesus but we are still in this world and while we're still in this world life's hard and we have needs and we have desires and we have things that we want to ask God for and while we wait we have certainty that as we pray God hears us and as he hears he acts it put me in mind of the prophet Elijah. I don't know if you remember that story. It's in 1 Kings 18. You're going to look it up later. 
where Elijah was the last prophet in the whole of Israel who listened and who worshipped the true God. They'd all gone worshipping Baal, this, this, this idol, right? And they had hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal. And Elijah goes, I'll tell you what, let's have a little competition. A little friendly competition between us. Let's set up two altars. Let's put a cow on each altar. And then, you're not allowed to set fire to it. We're going to pray to our God. And let's see which God answers with fire. And they're like, oh, yes, we can do that. Let's do it. Let's go. And so 450 of them all get together. They build the two altars. They put the sacrifice on it. And Elijah goes, oh, you guys go first. I want to watch. This should be fun. And all 450 of them start chanting and singing and dancing and doing the conga around the sacrifice altar, whatever it is that they're doing. And, oh, Baal, listen to us. For three hours they're going at it and nothing happens. And Elijah's like, speak louder. He can't, he, maybe he's traveling or something, I don't know. Go on, go on, guys. And they're like, oh, and they start whipping themselves and they're in like this frenzy. And nothing happens. And Elijah goes, my turn. Do you mind, um, just put a bit of water on it for me, would you? And they're like, what? No, seriously, just go get some buckets and they soak it just completely, the the wood, the animal, the stone, there's like rivulets running around it. Now, a bit more, a bit more, put more water on it. And then he goes, all right, my turn. And he says, Heavenly Father, would you show them that you're real? And the fire that falls from heaven consumes not just the animal, not just the water-soaked wood, but the stone. One little prayer. God hears. God answers. It's not as if our prayers get lost in the hubbub. I mean, what are there, two billion Christians in the world? At any given point in time, there's maybe a hundred million prayers going up to God. You ever stop to think about that? hundred million prayers. And you might be tempted to think, well, why would God listen to me? What's my one little voice in the midst of a hundred million? Surely it's going to get lost, right? Now, some people get a bit worried about that. And they try and kind of turbocharge their prayers a bit. I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two common ways that I've heard of, of kind of making sure that God hears your prayer. Right? One is that whole religious fervor thing. You've got to build yourself up into, through whatever means it is, right? whether it's you've got to pray constantly or flagellate yourself or whatever it is that you've kind of got to do to get into this hyper state. And in that state, God will hear your prayer. Others simply go by a shortcut and they try and find somebody more important than themselves to kind of get the word in. Whether it's a priest, whether it's your minister at church, whether it's saints or angels even. I'm going to go and pray to the saints so that they can talk to God for my... Whatever it might be. Just... That's not how it is. God's not finite like we are. God doesn't struggle to hear your prayer. Oh, it's so noisy today. I can't hear what David's saying. No. He hears. And if he hears, he acts. But John does tell us, doesn't he, how to pray. See, if you're anything like me, as soon as you hear that promise, your first question is, really? Hang on a second. You're saying that I can ask God for anything and he's going to give it to me. (laughs) Really? I mean, let's try it, right? Dear God, I want a Ferrari to crash through those doors. Well, it doesn't work. God's promise isn't sure. No, because John tells us how to pray. Did you notice that? Have a look again. 
Back up at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's a very consistent teaching on prayer. We already came across it in 1 John chapter 3. If you flick back a page, come back to chapter 3 and verse 21. Right? He puts it this way, similar, similar idea. He says, uh, John, 1 John 3, 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Well, it's same, same blank check, anything we ask, but the how is important because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Right, that is, we are invested into God, not ourselves. We are seeking to please God, not our own hearts. We are seeking to obey God rather than disobey. You can read the same in John's Gospel. In John chapter 15 uh, is, is kind of the, the classic, right, if you ask in my name, then it will be given to you. Or in John chapter 14, ask in Jesus' name for the glory of the Father. Now, some people then take that as sort of a, almost a superstitious thing. As long as you whack in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, you can do whatever you want. I've done it. I've prayed in Jesus' name. I, I had a friend, I always remember his way of praying. He'd pray whatever, normal prayers, and then at the end, he'd always have this sentence. We pray with great confidence, knowing that we've already received what we asked for, for we pray in Jesus' name. And it was, it was almost like a talisman. As long as you've got the little, in Jesus' name at the end, the content of the prayer doesn't matter. God's now bound to give it to you. You've prayed it in Jesus' name. Which... I think completely misses the point. The point of praying in Jesus' name isn't that you say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. The point of praying in Jesus' name is that you are aligning yourself with Jesus, with his will. You are desiring his glory. You are seeking that which pleases him, not you. James puts it on the negative. He says, you ask but you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. My prayers are so full of me. This is what I want with never a second thought for what it is that God desires. What God's will is. What Jesus' name requires. So some people go the superstitious route. Look, for some then have suggested that in order to pray this prayer rightly, you have to work out God's will. You have to somehow discern right, whatever it is that God wants to happen and only when you pray for that one specific thing will God answer it. I don't think that's what's going on here either. It's the name of Jesus, the character of God. It's his glory. When we ask, he will give. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine one day Eleanor, my, my second child, walks up to me and says, Dad, uh, I want you to give me the keys to the RAV4, to your car, and I want it to be my car from now on. I'll drive it, and uh, whenever you want it, you can come and ask me for it. Now, I'm going to say no, uh, mostly because Eleanor is four. All right? No, you can't have my car. That is not in line with my desires. It's not in line with what I want.
walks up to me one day and he says, Daddy, can you read me uh, Bumpus, Rumpus, Dinosaur, Jumpus, right? Current favourite. Now, I wasn't intending on reading him a book right now. I'm doing other things. But he's asking something of me that I love to give, that I want for him. I want him to develop a love of books and to grow and explore the world. And I want him to sit with me and spend time. I'll do that. Right, the, the asking, I mean, it, it's, okay, it's a flawed example, right? God's never too, don't worry about the, the bits that, are, that are, don't quite work. You get the point. You ask, the child asks the father in accordance with the father's will, with what the father delights in and with what will glorify the father. The father will very happily give that, even if it wasn't at that point what they were planning on. That's the bit that God doesn't work, right? God does plan it, okay? Just box, put it there. It's what we read in Psalm 37. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that a beautiful promise? God will give you the desires of your heart. As your heart desires him. As you delight in him. As you pray in the name of Jesus, as you pray in his will, as you desire that which glorifies God. Let me just do a little case study for a moment. Let's talk about some of the prayers that we often pray. Have you ever prayed for your own health? Or maybe in Bible study one week, right? What should we pray for? I'd like you to pray for my health. You ever done that one? I mean, I did it just this week. It's classic, right? I've got a cold, I've got the sniffles, my knee hurts. Oh, more seriously. God's will for me to pray, heal me. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe this sickness is what I need right now. Compare that for a moment with thinking about what is it that God does want for me. I know that God does want me to be a patient person. So how about a prayer where I say to God, God, teach me patience in my sickness. What about a prayer when you're in a time of conflict? Right, you, it, 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 it makes you feel bad, it sucks up time and energy, and you're like, God, I just want this to stop because I'm uncomfortable. Does God want that conflict to stop? Maybe. Or maybe it's what I need right now. He wants me to be godly in the midst of it. He wants me to witness to his character and to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of that conflict. So how about I pray instead, Father, give me opportunities to witness in the midst of my conflict. You ever prayed for money? None of us are really crass enough to to present that as a prayer point. You're in Bible study, what do you want to pray for? I want God to give me more money, right? No no one ever does that. It's a little bit kind of, you couldn't do that. But but we will often pray for things connected to wealth. And and it seems like the bigger ticket the item is, the more we're prepared to pray for it, right? I've got to pray for the mortgage. I'm on a mortgage stress. Okay, that's okay, we'll pray for that. I've got to pray for the the, the promotion, because maybe the promotion will bring me more money, right? And you you pray for that, but no one's ever like, yes, I want a thousand bucks to go and buy video games or no one does that anyway it doesn't matter right praying for money does god want me to have more money does god want you to have more money 
Maybe. Or maybe not, actually. Maybe he wants you to be poor for a while. Maybe that'll do you really good. What do I know? I do know that God wants me to be generous. I do know that God wants to transform my heart so that I will use all that I already have to serve, to give, to look after my brothers and sisters in Christ, to care for the poor and the vulnerable and the needy, to reach out with the gospel to those who are gospel poor. That I know. And so instead of God give me some cash because I want it, I can start to pray, God, teach me to be generous. Uh, Anyway, some little case studies. Do you know, this week it's really just shown me how lame my own prayers are, to be honest. Lots to learn. And a great certainty framed in that astonishing promise. He hears as we pray in accordance with who he is. And he answers. With one exception. The the promise, it made me think of Adam and Eve, right? You may eat anything except for one thing. You may pray anything except for one thing. If you notice verse 16 as we went through, it's one of those verses that as you're reading, you kind of go, okay. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin. It does not lead to death. The point is this. There's only one thing not to pray for. A sin that leads to death. When a brother is in that, well, that's a prayer that God will not answer. When God has already determined the destiny of that individual through their own egregious sin, the, the badness of the sin they have committed, God has said, no, they will die. That prayer... God, please save them. God will not answer. But get the point. That's the only thing. Anything else you can pray for, right? You can think of it as a negative. Oh, no, that's a bad. You can think of it as a positive. God is opening the floodgates. Come and pray and ask and receive. Now, John doesn't tell us what the sin that leads to death is. It's very inconsiderate of him, isn't it? I mean, come on, you're going to drop that one and run? Like, that's thought about might drop. I think the point is that it doesn't matter. It's not something that we're supposed to worry about and fret over and try and work out what it is. And I, I'll give you two options. I, th- I can think of two things that it might be. Um, but the point, you get the point. You can pray, pray. If you see a brother in sin, pray for them. What might it be? Well, it might just be the final straw of a disobedient believer. Think Ananias and Sapphira, right? This couple who sold some land and then lied to the apostles about how much money they got for They didn't have to lie. They could have just told it and not given the money, whatever. They didn't have to. They lied. God struck them dead. It could be something like that. It could be apostasy. That is, you turn your back on Jesus. When you just say, no, I've had enough of you, Jesus, I don't want to be near you. Right? That, that could be sin that leads to death. The point is, don't get hung up on it. Right? It's a positive point that shows us just this one little thing that God's not going to answer to show you how much he will. We have great confidence and great certainty 
That as we pray in God's will, God hears and God answers. All right, so those are the first two. The next three are much quicker. All right, number one, we have great confidence, certainty that we can know that we have eternal life. Number two, we are certain that God hears and God answers as we pray prayers that are a delight to him. Number three, we have certainty that we have victory over sin. Have a look at verse 18. We know, John says, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. What a beautiful promise. The one born of God, Jesus, keeps us safe, such that Satan cannot harm us. Born of God, no longer slaves to sin. John's not saying that Christians don't sin. John's not saying that Christians are perfect, that you you give your life to Jesus and then the next day you're done. There's no more sin in your life. We've already seen that through this same letter. In fact, just the previous verse, verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. There is sin that does not lead to death. We remember back in chapter 1, right? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. But if we have sinned, we have one who speaks in our defense, the Father, Jesus, the mediator, right? It's not that we'd never sin. Rather, I take it that it is the unbroken pattern that comes from slavery to sin that is no longer in the Christian life. We are no longer slaves to sin in the way that we used to be. It's not perfection, but the direction. It's not that you've reached, but that you are attaining. A pattern of righteousness that replaces the pattern of sin that used to mark. You go read Romans chapter 3 sometime if you want, or Ephesians chapter 2. The description of those who are outside of Jesus as being slaves to Satan and so slaves to their own sin. We are confident that that is not us. Released by God. Now what about though you say to me, well David, hang on a second, because I've been fighting this particular sin and I just can't win. If you're telling me that I'm no longer a slave to this sin, then why does it feel like I still am? Why am I still caught up in it? I can never get rid of it. I don't know what that might be for you. Well, there is victory. And there's victory in the sun, not in us. I don't have a particularly nice way of saying this. I'm just going to say it. What does your prayer life show? I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that this is coming off the back of the prayer bit. Does your prayer life show you to be committed to God's will for your life? To holiness? To righteousness? Does your prayer life show that you are in agony over the sin that you are fighting? Or does it show that you kind of still actually have a foot in both camps? in the language of James, that you're still double-minded. That yes, you don't want to be sinning, but gee, it's kind of nice. And do you mind if I just carry on a little bit? Born of God, freed from slavery, such that we depend upon him for this victory over sin. 
We are certain that we have eternal life. We are certain that God hears and answers prayer. We are certain that we have victory over sin. We are certain, number four, that we belong to God. Verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It's a very stark picture, isn't it? There are two realms. There are two places that you can belong to. You can either belong to God or you can belong to Satan. That's our world. Most... Look, if you'd said that to someone on the street, they'd be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> don't be silly. I don't belong to Satan. I'm not a Satanist. I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? There's this view of the world where there's the Satanists down here. They belong to Satan. There's most people, and we're kind of neutral. And then there's the raving fundamentalists, right? You lot, you're down this end. And, and kind of, I'm just a neutral person, and I sit here, right? That's not what God says. The truth, the objective truth that God's word teaches us about reality is that you are either belong to God or you belong to Satan. Children of the Father, whichever your father is. And Christian, you can be certain of this. You are of God. You belong to him. You are his beloved child to whom he has given life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then this word is a very stark one. The Bible says you belong to Satan. And you might come up to me afterwards and say, well, ah, yeah, whatever. I'm in, I'm in the neutral camp. I'm not a Satanist. I'm not down there. I mean, you know, you know Satan's greatest lie, right? What's his greatest lie? That he doesn't exist. He's done it very well. We are confident as Christians that we belong to God in a world that belongs to Satan. And by the way, that's why Christians are intolerable, right? Can you imagine? What do you mean that the world belongs to Satan? You can't say that. I don't. God does. Fifth, certainly, last and greatest, Christ is the true God and eternal life. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so, dear children, keep yourself from idols. We end where we started. If you're able to remember all the way back to 1 John chapter 1, this, this was the first verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, that you may have fellowship with us, our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the greatest certainty of them all. God has entered into our world in his Son, Jesus. God has died on the cross once for all to pay for sin. God raised Jesus to new life, that relationship might be restored and eternity assured. This is the heart of the matter. I mean, it's all about Jesus. In the end, at the beginning and everywhere in between, it's all about Jesus. And it's why Christians are so intolerable. Because we hold to that, that in Jesus... And only in Jesus is there eternal life. 
So we have great confidence, knowing that we have eternal life, knowing that God hears and answers our prayers, knowing that we have victory over sin, knowing that we belong to God. All of this because we know that Jesus is a true God in whom there is eternal life. So please, please keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is life. We thank you for these fantastic certainties that you have shown us through your word, the confidence that we can have even as we come before you and call you Father. Father, fill us with joy and hope in believing today that this word might resonate in our hearts and in our minds. And Father, give us boldness and confidence if we need to take steps, if we have been made uncomfortable by this word, to find ourselves right with you today through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.